as is your custom, I'd ask you please stand out of reverence for God's holy word. You know it, and you know I am supposed to remind you again and again, keep the third commandment, do not take God's name in vain. You are hearing God's word. We'll talk about this more, but he speaks in this passage to you, each one of you, in the first person. Give reverent ear as such. Isaiah 43 Verse 1, but now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you've been honored and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. So I wanted to start off with what I think will be a very easy question for you, probably. Um, Can you think of something that's precious to you? Something that you love? Now I would bet, um, should I give you more time? (laughs) I I would bet that many of you uh, thought about your family, right? You you think about um, your children or maybe your grandchildren. Uh, you, if you're younger or if you're, you're not married yet, you, you might think about your parents, your grandparents, your brothers, your sisters. You get the idea. Um, and since a parent loves their child, it makes sense, right, that they're concerned about them. Uh, and they're concerned about all sorts of things, right? We have that uh, term we call the helicopter parent. Right? It's that parent that's like a helicopter hovering over their kids. Um, Perhaps in a way, you know, and not in that example, it's too much. But um, it makes sense since the parent loves their children. They're they're caring about their, they care about their education. They care about their their health. They care about uh, their safety. And uh, most of all, if they're a Christian parent, they of course care that their children would truly know Christ and would sincerely see Him as the treasure He is. And I think, too, you know, you can probably uh, relate to this. I mean, whether, whether you have kids or whether you don't. Um, sometimes in life, you kind of wish you had superpowers, right? Like you see in those Marvel comics. But like superpowers that you would know if there is anything going on with your loved ones that you should know about. Right? You want to know if there's something going on. Because sometimes people don't. They don't even tell you. You don't know what's going on. Or like kids at school and things. And connected to that, we can wish that we had the power to resolve those problems. 
right? Financial problems, health problems, we feel helpless sometimes. Um, so that if we know about it, we'd have the power to just, just resolve it. So the question is, are you a Christian? If so, God in his word says that he loves you. We just read about it. He says uh, that you're precious in his eyes. Uh, he, he calls you his child. And that's really uh, where our message is going to uh, surround today. And therefore, he says, fear not. Right? That's, that's his message to you. Fear not. Trust me. So we're going to look at our text. We're going to ask this question, the simple question. Lord, why should I trust you? We'll begin answering that question with my first point, the first heading, which is trust the Lord because you are his precious possession. Look with me at verse 1. It says, But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Right? Our text says, but now. So I would use that uh, just to give you the immediate context. All right, I've kind of dropped you into chapter 43. A lot has gone ahead. Uh, He says, but now. Uh, What's just happened in chapter 42 at the end of the chapter is uh, God, you know how God is in his word. He speaks to us in pictures to try to help us to understand and get clarity. At the end of 42, he's just talked about the church and he pictures them as having gone through the fires of discipline. Our text says, But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. And have you considered two things? First, uh, as I've already said, he says, Thus says the Lord. Uh, It is a claim in the Word of God, in the Bible. Uh, It says right here that God is speaking in the first person. Uh, This is something that you need to have clear and distinct in your mind. What is the Bible? Is it the word of God or is it not? Over a thousand times in the prophets alone, it says, thus says the Lord. God, uh, the Bible is claiming to be God speaking to you in the first person. And then you count the rest of scripture thousands of times. What is it? It is the word of God. Secondly, uh, look at to whom it's addressed. It says, Thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Right? God is speaking to the church. So I would bring up a couple things here. He says, Jacob, Israel, right? When God formed the church in the Old Testament, he did it, uh, he organized it with a family, and then he organized it into the nation of Israel, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's names turned to Israel. So when he says, this is a very common way of him speaking, the prophets. He says, hey, Israel, right? Or, hey, Jacob, or, uh, or hey, Israel. He's saying, church, I've formed you, I've created you. So he's speaking to the church here with those terms. But I want you, as we go through, uh, to think of these things in two ways. God is speaking to the church, but God is also speaking to the individuals in the church. Because if I ask you, do you love your family? Uh, everyone says yes. But you don't love the concept of familiness, right? No, you love the individuals in your family. 
And so uh, I would have you to think of it in those two ways as we go through. These things are applying to the church, the church he loves and is precious to him as a body, but also uh, as this congregation, a part of the larger body, and you, a part of this congregation. He says, Thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Right? God says, fear not. Uh, Don't be afraid. Be calm. Have confidence. Trust me. Again, we say, why should I trust you, Lord? He says, because because I created you. I formed you. I redeemed you. I called you by name. You are mine. Reasons why you shouldn't fear. Reasons why you should trust God. We see that uh, God created you with purpose. Look down with me at verse 7. God says that those who were called by his name were created for what? For his glory. You weren't created without purpose. You were created specifically. Your hair color, your height, your parent, your who your parents would be, where you'd be born, what language you'd speak, what your fingerprint would be like. All of it. You were created with purpose. And your ultimate purpose as called out ones, as his loved ones, as his children, is to glorify him. He says, trust me, fear not, I've redeemed you. Scripture says that Christ purchased you with his own blood. Acts 20, 28. And it says, greater love has no one than this, right? Then he should lay down his life for his friends. And you know, again, Christ laid down his life for you. And consider verse 4. Verse 4 says, Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I love you. So you should trust the Lord, because he says right there in black and white, if you're like me, I mean, it's kind of hard to believe. It's kind of hard to accept. But he just says, I love you, and you are precious to me. In verse 1, God says that he has called you by name. He knows you intimately. Like I've already said, he knows everything about you. He knows your hopes. He knows your dreams. He knows your sorrows. He knows your concerns. He knows what you're worried about. uh, Problems that you might have brought in with you today. And he's called you out of this world to be like Enoch, to walk with him, to know him, to speak with him. He says what? You are mine. You belong to me. Can you begin to see why you shouldn't fear? That strong desire in you to protect uh, your loved ones? I mean, you would take a bullet for your family, wouldn't you? I mean, you would do anything for them. That strong desire in you to protect uh, your loved ones is but a shadow against God and and who he is 
for his love with his children? But trusting the Lord is not always going to be easy. And God doesn't hide that. He doesn't hide that at all. We see the psalmist again and again. In fear, we, we, in our passage alone, he says, fear not twice. Why? Because he knows that we fear. Consider verse 2. It says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. They, they're not going to overwhelm you. When, you. when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. God here uses two illustrations of things that are very common to us. We just had the apple fire, right? Uh, I think it's still burning. Um, but, but these are images we see every uh, summer. Uh, fires start, huge fires. And listen, it's one thing to be on the news and to watch it, uh, you know, way over there. And you think, why do crazy people move there anyways? Uh, but there's this just raging fire going through. And listen, if your house is in that path, you feel like uh, little and you have no strength to stop it. There's no way out of this. Your life is ruined if it gets, I mean, whatever you could pack up in the car. And we see back east, right, every year you see some person getting airlifted off of their house by a helicopter the the water's like up to the roof again your life seems destroyed it seems ruined god uses uh, this picture and he uh he uses this picture to show us to um, acknowledge as such that we do go through the deep waters right of unemployment of mounting debt of loneliness of anxiety, pressures of different kinds, brought on by different things, a mental illness, different levels, cancer, strokes, death of a loved one, infertility, miscarriages, broken relationships, broken dreams, Right? They can all be like looking out at the sea. Man, like, like I said, there's no land in sight. Like it's not going to end. It could seem vast and, and without end. What does the Lord say? He gives you two promises here, doesn't he? First, he says, the water shall not overwhelm you. The fire shall not consume you. And second, look what he says. He says, I will be with you. He doesn't say, I, I, I acknowledge it. I know about it. I know what's going on. I'm going to keep my eye on it. You know, uh, you know I'll, I'll watch it. No, he says, I will be with you. With you in the water. With you in the fire. I will be right next to you. He'll be intimately involved. He won't leave you. You should trust the Lord, you see, because you're precious to him. Because uh, he loves you. Because he's promised he's going to be with you and, and walk with you. He'll be in the water with you, in the fire with you. And he's going to guard and defend you because you're precious. And that's what we see in our second heading. In verses 3 and 4, we see that we should trust the Lord because we're under his protection. 
Verse 3 says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Notice the simultaneous nature of that statement. It's personal, right? I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. You see, it's personal, it's corporate, and it stands to reason that God, if He is meticulously managing and protecting you as an individual and the church as a whole, that you are going to find Him if he is your God, to also be your Savior. Now, I'm not saying Savior in the Christ on the cross redemption kind of way, but your Savior in this life as you pilgrim in this wilderness right before entering the promised land. You're going to find God to be your Savior. Verse 3 continues, I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you're precious in my sight, You have been honored and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people in exchange uh, for your life. What does that mean? How is it that God is going to uh, give people in exchange for your life or give men in exchange for you? Um, Let me give you two examples, two illustrations from God's word. In Isaiah 36 and 37, a little bit before our text, we read of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. He comes, or he sends his emissaries, his representatives, they're called the Rabshakeh, right? He sends them south to go to Judah and to come before the king of Judah, who is Hezekiah. He comes, they come to the gates of the city and they start threatening them that they're going to destroy him. They're there for the big shakedown, right? Do what we say, Give us what we want, or we're going to destroy you. Now, uh, Hezekiah sees this. He renders his garment. He's going to go to the temple, bring his problem before the Lord. Before he does that, he sends his advisors. He says, listen, go talk to Isaiah. Tell him what's going on. Ask him what we should do here. So they go uh, to Isaiah, and we read about his response in chapter 37, verses 6 and 7. The text says, Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, thus you shall go tell Hezekiah. Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. And here it is, look what God will do. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, that is the king of Assyria, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So God says, I'm going to send a spirit. He's going to hear a rumor. This is going to distract, divert him, and send him in another direction away from you. I'm going to save you. Verse 8 continues. Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he had departed Lachish. So in this immediate instance, uh, God sends this other king out and that distracts Uh, The king of Assyria away from Judah saves them. He goes after uh, this other king. And later, this king of Assyria will return to his own land, we read about in scripture, and his sons are going to kill him in the temple of his false god. That's how he'll come to his end. Let me give you one more example. King David. Uh, King David slew Goliath, right? He slays Goliath. He comes into the service of King Saul. Back then, he's just a... Shepherd, right? Slays him, comes into the service of King Saul. 
becomes a general, starts getting more and more renowned as God gives him victories. Uh, Saul begins to hate him. David flees. We read in 1 Samuel, right? Uh, He's just chasing him around, uh, David. And sometimes he gets closer to to other times, but uh, David always seems to get away. But there's one text where he gets uh, really, really close, probably closer than he ever got. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 26 through 28. In that text, it says, Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. Check this out. But a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. And therefore, Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. And so they called that place the Rock of Escape. God saves David from harm by sending Saul after the Philistines. God gave the Philistines for David. He gave the Philistines in exchange for David. He gave men in exchange for you. The idea is uh, that God sends the wicked after the wicked in order uh, to save his people. God diverts their attention in order to save you. It's part of his fatherly care for you. Uh, It's part of Christ's mediatorial role as his king, uh, as king over you, to protect you. He says, I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. I will give men for you and people for your life. And he does this because he says you're precious to him and because he loves you. It's probably not going to surprise you. I always try to read Calvin and his commentaries on passages when I'm studying to uh, write a sermon. And I really like something that Calvin said about these uh, two verses. He said, There will be no man whom God will not take away and destroy in order to preserve his people. This is the line I like. He says, For he sets a higher value on a single believer than on the whole world. This this isn't a principle from just 2,800 years ago. God is saving his church now. God is actively protecting all saints now providing for you protecting you sheltering you and he's protecting each of us as individuals as well it's because you're beloved and this is why he doesn't want you to fear you're his precious possession you're under his protection you're under his protection because he intends on on preserving you on keeping you. And that's what we see in verses 5 through 7. You should trust the Lord because you're being kept by his preservation. Draw your attention to verse 5. He says, Fear not, for I am with you. There it is again. Fear not, but also, a second time, I am with you. Says, I will bring your descendants from the east, and I will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, Give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. 
everyone who was called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. So we see here uh, a promise that God is going to preserve his church. He's going to bring these descendants from these uh, four north, south, east, to west. So uh, let me give you some, some background so we can appreciate this a little more. Uh, at the time, okay, uh, we already went over uh, the patriarchs. God organizes the church under the Mosaic Covenant. He organizes the church, the ancient church, as, uh, as Israel, right? The ancient church. But what happens, they're, they're a nation and they're a church. What happens is uh, there's something of a civil war and it breaks apart into the north and the south, Israel and Judah. We already read, remember we read about that king who comes to the south to uh, shake down Hezekiah. Well, as he's writing this, right, we saw him go to Isaiah and Isaiah gave him counsel. As he's writing this, the north is already gone. They were defeated about 25 years earlier. They were conquered. And part of the tactic of, uh, of a king invading a nation at the time is you invade multiple nations. Okay? And once you conquer the king and his army, you take the people and you scatter the people. You mix them up because there's power in numbers. Right? So you, you invade multiple nations. You mix up all the people so they can't regroup and try to get their land back. So it's part of uh, the strategy. So in the context of people who are looking at this text or Isaiah preaching it or it's freshly written, the church is looking on on this and they're seeing that the majority of the church, the northern kingdom, is already scattered, right? And, and what did God ask of them to do in worship of him? They, they were to keep the feast, right? Uh, three times a year, the males all had to travel to Jerusalem. Um, there was all kinds of ceremonial laws that they needed to keep, that, they want, that, that God wanted them to keep, these things pointing to Christ. Uh, but that church was largely unable to fulfill what they were supposed to fulfill in worshiping God. Now, a hundred years after this is written, Babylon comes and conquers Judah, the south. What happens to the south? They're scattered. Now you're reading this text, Isaiah 43, 1 through 7, specifically five verses 5 through 7, 100 years after the time of Christ, the entire church is gone. The, the temple is destroyed and burned. The walls burned. The people are scattered everywhere. None of uh, God's worship is being kept. Uh, it looks hopeless. So there is... Uh, a point in this. God is saying, I'm going to preserve my church. I'm going to bring your descendants from the north, the south, the east, and the west. Perhaps we can um, identify with the church to some degree. Right? Because this COVID-19 thing has scattered much of the church. Uh, some of the church is more scattered than others. Certainly, uh, months ago is worse than it, it may be now, but you know there's our, there's threats, right? You guys continue to gather. We're going to shut things off, we're, and things are moving all the time. In China, uh, they already had problems. 
Because the government goes and they threaten the landlord. They close the place down. The church is having to move every two months. You guys know the pain of having to get a new facility. Where's it? I don't know where worship even is until Saturday sometimes, right? But not only that, the church in China is trying to meet on formats like Zoom, but uh, the nation is able to come in and disrupt so that they can't even gather that way. So there is some context that is immediately applicable to us. There's a way, a sense, a real way, which the church is uh, scattered now. And that scattering makes it hard for us to come and take the sacraments, to come and hear the word preached, uh, to gather, and so forth. In verses 5 through 7, God promises he's going to preserve the church. Though her enemies will try to distract, destroy, and discourage, they will prevail. Why? Because, again, the church is precious to God. He loves the church. Consider the active language we see in, in these verses. He says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. And I will say... Let me start again. Fear not, for I am with you. He says, I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. You see the way he is actively moving. I'm going to command. I'm going to call. Not only does God preserve his church then, but he uh, will regather and this church will be regathered from this virus. It will uh, persevere. We will move on. And do you remember, we should acknowledge too why the church was scattered in the first place uh, back then. They were scattered in the time of Hezekiah and the time of Isaiah. They were scattered because of idolatry and because of sin. And so one thing we see here is God actively restoring from discipline. So I'd ask that question, are you in need of restoration? Many of you, there's a lot of uh, children here. You parents know that when you discipline your your children, it's not because you want to get them or get revenge on them or be vindictive toward them. No, you discipline them because you love them, right? You discipline them because you want to protect them from either harming themselves or others and either physically or some other way. But your whole hope is that they will repent in a sense, that they will change uh, then. Because who likes a silent treatment for a week after there's punishment, right? Or uh, that little attitude problem, right? No, you want restoration. You don't want to punish in the first place. But you love them, you have to. You want restoration immediately. And what I'm saying is, if you're in need of restoration, be restored. Know this, God wants to restore you. He wants to restore you. And these are also verses uh, that apply to God gathering the elect, right? He says, I'm going to gather your descendants from north, south, east, west, every tribe, every every nation. Um, We know from Galatians chapter 3 that that those who are the seed of Abraham are the ones that are going to believe. 
And so our descendants are all the ones that will believe the God's elect that will come in the future. God promises that he will continue to gather his church. The church will continue to grow. Christ will have his inheritance. The church will be victorious. The gospel will be victorious. Notice also the intimate language in these same verses. I'll begin reading at verse 6. It says, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. And then hear this. He says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Do you hear how warm that is? He draws you in close, even when you are tempted to acknowledge his holiness, all these things that you should. God continues to draw you in close, doesn't he? He says, call me father. You are my sons. You are my daughters. I'm going to adopt them. I'm going to give them the family name. They are going to be co-inheritors with Christ. See, what I want you, what I hope with all my heart, is that each of you will understand that you're not some nobody in the church. You know, you might be tempted uh, to think that uh, you're, you're a nobody. Uh, you know, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a preacher. I'm not an elder. I'm not, you might say that. You might be tempted in some other way to think that you're unimportant. But I would have you know that you are extremely important. Have you ever gone into a place, a restaurant or a business where you know the owner? Like I've gone into a restaurant where I know the owner and he greets me warmly. He's, um, I, I was with, in one particular instance, with a friend. We order, we're getting food and all these extra dishes are coming to our table. Because the guy is, I don't know, he just hadn't seen, it had been like 10 years. He hadn't seen me in a long time. He's sending all these dishes and I'm thinking, Right? I'm looking pretty good in front of my friend uh, because there's these dishes coming and we're eating like kings and so forth. But you know, uh, when you know someone in the place, you're someone special. And what I'm telling you is that you're not a nobody, in, not in, only in this church, but no true church of Christ. You are a somebody. You know who you are? You're a son. You're a daughter. You matter very much. You belong here. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 said, God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and without blame before him in love because he predestined you to adoption as sons, as daughters. Before God created everything, like we've already said, he knew you, he designed you. You were made with a purpose to glorify him, to be a trophy unto his grace and to his mercy. It's what Isaiah in our passage is also talking about. Verse 7 says he's going to gather everyone who was called by my name, whom I created for my glory. You're God's beloved child. Again, can you see why you should trust the Lord. You see, we don't have a doubt in our minds about our commitment 
to cherish and protect our loved ones. And so I'm going to ask you, why? Why would we think of God as any less loving and noble than ourselves? It doesn't make any sense. The most noble father, human father, that will ever live. I don't know who he is, but the most noble, best father who will ever live in human history is nothing in comparison to your father in heaven. We would be crazy to think of God as less noble than ourselves, right? He loves you. You're his child. You're precious. He's going to protect you. He's going to preserve you. Do you remember in verse 4, we talked about that as, um, because you're precious in God's eyes, he is going to give men in exchange for you. We talked about those illustrations about 700 years after that prophecy is written. God uh, did send a man. He, he sent his son. He sent Christ in exchange for you. He, he, he sent him, if you have a bank account. It's like when we're born into this world under Adam, we're born with our bank account already overdrawn. We're already in debt. And with every sin you commit, you pass another bad check. 500 negative, overdrawn, 1,000, 10,000, 20,000. Your account becomes more and more overdrawn as you sin in this life. Christ has an infinite account, a balance that's infinite. God takes your debt and he charges it to Christ, takes Christ's infinite balance and wire transfers it, imputes it, accounts it to you so that your debt is truly paid sent, charged to Christ on the cross and his earned righteousness, his covenant keeping, all of it, infinite balance transferred to you. He sees you standing as Christ in Christ's righteousness, covenant keeper. And in so doing, he declares you, acknowledges you righteous and can thereby adopt you as his child. The great exchange. I will give man for you. I will give my son for you. Are you in need of this? Are you in need of being reminded about this? Are you in need of forgiveness? Are you in need of getting right? Either for the first time or being restored? Are you in need of this kind of fatherly love and care? You know that if, if you're not right, you need to come before God. You need to pray. How do you pray? You open your mouth. You talk. You don't have to speak like Spurgeon. You don't have to come out with poetic prose befitting a king. It's great if you can do it. Pray that you get that gift. But you need open your mouth, right? Come before God. Confess your sin. Ask for forgiveness. Believe. Receive. Trust the Lord. Again, the big question, why should you trust the Lord? 
You should trust the Lord because you're his precious possession. You should trust the Lord because you're under his fatherly protection. You should trust the Lord because he's promised to preserve you. You should trust the Lord because he loves you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. Lord, we need to hear it. We need to be reminded of it often. Lord, if you could emboss it on our souls, on our hearts, on our minds, if you could brand us, tattoo us, make it permanent, remind us, Lord, again and again of your love. Lord, we do not want to live in condemnation, but we want to rejoice in the victory we've been given and from that fatherly care that you've promised to us. Lord, help us to remind each other of your word and of these promises. Stir us and help us, Lord. Help us to trust you. You know that it is not always easy. And we'd ask these things in Christ's name.